This is the Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. It's fairly short, the Metta Sutta, but I think it has the whole of the Dharma in it. I'm very glad that we've been teaching the Brahma Vihara practice throughout the time that we've been together. I've really, over time, come to really, I think, <clears throat> I think mature in my understanding of the Metta Sutta and Brahma Vihara practice. I used to think they were more separate from mindfulness practice, from Vipassana practice than I think now. And I think when we began to introduce it into mindfulness retreats and decide that we would do an hour of practice every day of the Brahma Viharas, I think we were thinking that it would... Uh, boy up the heart. It would lift up people's practice. It does. It's a good reason to do it. Bring a lightness into the practice of insight. Mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice, is hard practice. It's serious. There's no place to hide. I think of it sometimes as back-to-the-wall practice. There's no place to go completely naked to yourself. So it makes sense to buoy up the heart a little bit. It's hard to really look from that defenseless place at really the truth of one's experience. It's hard to look at one's own suffering. It's hard for me to look at the traps that I continue to fall into. 
It's hard also to look at the suffering of the world. Not just the pain of the world that's caused by greed and hatred and delusion. That's very difficult to look at. But I think more than that, to look at the truth of suffering itself, to look at the pain of greed, hatred, and delusion. That their very presence in the mind constellates a sense of separate self, a separate self that's struggling. And that very sense of self is what hides the view of the seamless and awesome interconnected lawful net of causes and conditions which is really all there is. It also gets in the way of us experiencing the lightness and the joy that would be there if we had that view. It also gets in the way of the natural well-being, wishing context of the heart. Last night, Gil was talking about the uh, natural sensitivity of the heart when we're not confused. We have an empathic, uh, I feel it as a, I think of it as a fluttering quality of the heart, one that's aware of everyone else and everything else that we share this life with and responds to it empathically. I thought I would tell you uh, that in uh, December of last year, uh, my husband and I went to Tahiti for a week. And uh, apart from the fact that Tahiti is just a dot in the middle of the ocean, um, there was no one there that I knew. I, I knew my husband, but none of the normal things that connect me to my life were there. The view is entirely different. The climate is different. Most of all, there was no telephone and no fax machine and no email. Nobody phoned me up and said, um, uh, this is Spirit Rock and we're needing to make this and that decision and we'd like to know what you think about this, in which case I assume my role as Spirit Rock teacher. No one called me up and said, Mom, what should I do about this, that, and the other, in which case I take on my identity as Mom. No one phoned me up about anything. And I began to notice that it was interesting not to have a context and not to have roles, not to have anyone that I needed to be. Discovered that that made me very light of heart. There's a way in which I think we become unchallenged when we don't need to be anyone. We can't possibly do it wrong. I think we worry a lot about doing it wrong. And the way that I really noticed the difference in myself, apart from the fact that it's lovely to be in Tahiti, is I noticed how spontaneous well-wishing is. Here were all these folks that I didn't know, that I passed in the course of the day, and I noticed how spontaneously I would look at a person, look at a young family with young children, and I would remember how it is to have young children, and if they were visitors, I would think to myself, Goodness, they made a long trip on an airplane with these young children. That was really hard. And may they thrive and may their children grow well. And they lived there. I thought to myself, well, that's wonderful. I wonder how these children are growing up here. May they thrive and do well. 
I saw young folks, lots of people go there on their honeymoon. And, I, and you can tell who they are. They look a certain way. Uh, I thought to myself, they have no clue of what they're starting. And, and I wish them so well. And they, they, I see older folk and think to myself, good for them. They're here too, and I wish them well. And I really noticed how spontaneous the well-wishing was. I think it's the natural context of the heart. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, it's not that hard to wish well in Tahiti, you know, away from everything. (laughs) I think you could be anywhere in the world and you take your mind with you. And I think people in Tahiti also get stuck in greed, hatred, and delusion, just the way everyone else does. When we are pressured (coughs) or overwhelmed, I didn't think it was Tahiti. I thought to myself, well, if we could do a control experiment, but you just did the control experiment. You did it right here. And any number of people in the course of these weeks, two weeks or four weeks, came into interviews and said to me, you know, all of a sudden I'll be sitting in the dining room and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm wishing people well. Just happens, you know. Well, maybe it's this practice we were doing, and it's so ground into my mind that it's a song that my heart is singing all the time. Well, I think it's the practice that we were doing, but I think the practice that we were doing was really connecting us with the truth of our own heart that's really doing that all the time, except that it's clouded over much of the time, so we don't hear it doing it. We weren't learning a skill that isn't natural and inherent to ourselves. We were working a little bit extra hard to discover the pleasure of knowing that it's actually there. So I think that when we began uh, this idea of um, metta practice in the Vipassana retreat, we thought it would support the Vipassana practice, and it does. But I think it's actually inherent in the practice of insight. I don't think really we can be mindful moment to moment unless we're open moment to moment, unless we truly are not in contention with each moment. When we give the definitions of mindfulness, we say it's the balanced awareness moment to moment without grabbing onto and without pushing away, without falling asleep in the middle of knowing that moment fully. That means that we have a benevolent heart on that moment. We're allowing it. We're not in contention with it. There's a way in which I think it really is part of the fabric of insight. And also more and more I'm beginning to think not only it supports the practice, and not only it's inherent in the practice, it's really an imperative practice. From the beginning of the time that I began my Vipassana practice, 
I had a hint of that. They used to be presented more as separate practices. And in truth, 25 years ago when I began, we didn't do metta practice except at the end of retreats. We do a whole, however many, 10 days, 20 days of vipassana practice. And then we would do 15 minutes of metta at the end. In fact, I thought it was the closing ceremony. Uh, It pretty much was in those days. But I wondered about it because as I heard people teach um, and I heard them teach about the point of practice, I would think this way. I tend to think in terms of equations. When I was in college, I trained as as a chemist. My degree is in chemistry. So I know how to write equations of how to combine elements and you don't actually make pluses or minuses, you make arrows. This combined with that leads to that, leads to that, leads to that. So I used to think about the formula for mindfulness practice seemed to me that you paid attention moment to moment, which arrow, arrow, arrow cultivated insight, which arrow, 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 as it accumulated a lot of insight, it became mysterious, something called wisdom, which was wisdom about the truth of anicca dukkha anatta, of impermanence of suffering and of emptiness. Really, most specifically, about the truth of suffering. And that the result of that insight, apart from the freedom of seeing clearly, the personal liberation of a mind that saw clearly and all the ways that that makes for a lightness and ease of living would manifest in our lives as goodness and kindness and compassion out of, on behalf of all beings. So all these arrows were leading to this, to this, to insight, to wisdom, liberation, which manifested in compassion. And I would think to myself, if that's where it's going, why don't we start at the other end and just practice compassion? Why don't we pretend that we have the insight? Whether or not we do, it sounds like it would be a wonderful end if we got there. Let's just practice the end of it. We'll fake it until we get to the end of it. thing is, you can't fake it, because however much you want to do it, there are certain insights that need to sustain it. Otherwise, you might want to do it, but it doesn't really happen. Or it happens a little bit, but not as much as the sustaining insight. There are two particular insights that we need, at least. One of them is the insight, which I'm sure you all have, the realization of the pain of a contentious heart. It just doesn't feel good to be in contention with the moment, with anyone, with our life, with circumstances. Heart says no to this person or that experience. We are the person who recoil. It's our experience of closed heart. I remember um, 
hearing about Jack's teacher, teacher Nisargadat Maharaj, saying, you can put anyone out of your house, but don't put them out of your heart. It's a really important teaching that we can be discriminating in our lives, can have wise discernment. We can say, this is a wholesome person, this is a person I want to be with, or this is a good thing, I can support it in the world, or this is an unwholesome person, or even a dangerous person, I need to help make this person not create more pain in the world. This is an unfortunate circumstance, I have to do anything that I can to change the circumstance but I don't have to be mad at it. Remember that guy said last night that metta practice was wisdom practice. I think it really is. Just as I don't think it's possible to practice vipassana and not do it with a metta spirit of the heart, I don't think it's possible to practice loving-kindness, compassion, mudita, without really seeing clearly what are the blocks that keep us from doing it. It's painful not to be with a completely open, loving heart, and it's a wonderful sense of ease to be. Imagine going around the world loving all beings, not being afraid of anything. I remembered just yesterday that um, years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, the first book on transactional analysis had uh, its cover. It's called uh, Born to Win, I think. And on the cover was a picture of a, of a child facing the ocean. Back, back is to the camera. I am sure it's a girl child, although you can't tell from the picture. <laughs> so back is to the camera. But as a naked child facing the ocean, with her arms way apart, like that. Like, here I am, world. And it's such a wonderful picture. I I don't even remember what the book is about. I just remember that the cover was wonderful. Imagine if we could go around the world just appreciating it and loving it and not being afraid of it. it. Doesn't mean a passive response to life not passionate response to life. Somewhere in the last two days I read someone who said, I think it's possible not to be angry and still to be passionate. I want to be angry and still be passionate. I believe that truly can be passionate and not resent. There's a particular line in the sutta that I'm sure you heard when I read it. Every one of these lines is wonderful. I'm going to do it line by line in a minute. But just to make sure, the one line, when we wish towards all beings, says, whatever living beings there may be, omitting none. That really means omitting none. It's a huge step to convert aversion to compassion. It has to happen through the recognition of ignorance as being the cause of anybody doing anything that causes pain. 
couple of years ago, there was a man who came to a meditation retreat, a, a metta retreat. I'll call him Brett. That wasn't his name, but I'll call him Brett. Came to a, a metta retreat, sat for seven days. And because of the fact that there were three teachers and we saw people every two days and we got to meet everybody because we shared all the people, I got to meet him at the last day and I hadn't met him before. And uh, he said, I've had a most remarkable week. He said, you know, I've never meditated before. He said, um, I read about meditation in Time magazine and it uh, seemed like everybody's doing it, so I thought I'd give it a try. But <laughs> and uh, he uh, lived in a large East Coast city and he said, uh, this has been a really remarkable week. Uh, can I tell you what happened to me? Yes, of course. He said, um, four years ago, a really terrible event happened in my life, frightened me enormously, and I put it away in the back of my mind. It was so terrible, I couldn't think about it. So I didn't think about it for four years. I kept it locked away in the back of my mind because I couldn't bear it. But when I got here, the first thing I did was I sat down, and it, uh, lo and behold, it started to emerge. And he said, I thought to myself, well, I have this whole week here. I can either struggle not to think, but I might as well. Now's my chance. He said, can I tell you the story? And this is a story that he told me. He said, four years ago, he said, I was coming home late at night uh, in the city where I live. And uh, I was walking through a neighborhood where, in, in retrospect, it was unwise for me to be there. I had in my wallet... Um, $700, a really large amount of money for, I don't usually have that kind of money with me, but I had a lot of money in my wallet, and uh, I was walking through this neighborhood, and suddenly, he said, a man jumped out from the shadows, nobody around, late at night, he had a gun, and uh, he said, I'm going to kill you, give me your wallet. He said, I gave him my wallet right away. He said, I was terrified, I gave him my wallet. But he stayed right there, and he held the gun at my chest, and he said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. He said, and I could see that he was very high on some sort of drug, probably. Seemed quite uh, beside himself. And uh, I said, wait. And he stopped. And I said, look, I'll give you my watch. I have this really good watch. Here's my watch. Gave him my watch. And I thought he'd go, but he took the watch, and then he put the gun back at my chest. And he said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And I said, wait. And he stopped. But I didn't have anything else to give him. So I said, look, listen to me. You did very, very well. He said, do you know how much money there is in that wallet? There's a lot of money in that wallet. When you go home tonight and your friends see what you've got, they're going to be so proud of you. You did great. And that watch, that's a very, very expensive watch. <laughs> you did great. Now go home. <laughs> and he said the person turned around and left. I was already, as you are, I'm sure, quite touched by that story. Because it's so touching to me to think about the fact that a person could be completely blown away. Nothing left in the way of humanly contactable thinking processes 
And the message that gets through is you did great. Imagine, what if the whole world got up tomorrow and everybody went around to each other and said, you're doing great, you're doing fine. (laughs) It would make such a difference. Instead of evaluating and judging. Anyway, you did great, he went home. (laughs) He said, four years, I was so traumatized by that story, I couldn't think about it. I was as close as I could possibly imagine being to being dead. He said, I just couldn't think of that event. It's a traumatic event without really shaking. He said, but I came here and I sat down and I thought, well, it's going to be too much of a struggle not to think about it. He said, I thought about it. He said, I'd be thinking and the story would come up in my mind and it would replay like a movie. And I would be thinking, and I'd hear it. He said, I said, he said, I said, he said, I said. And when I let myself really feel the whole story, I would shake and my my mouth would feel dry. I'd get cold. I'd feel terrible. And then it would finish and I'd take some breaths and I would say, may I be peaceful? May I be happy? May I be free of danger? May I have mental happiness? He said, I'd calm myself down. So a little bit of time would go by and then the story would come back again. And do the whole thing again, like a movie. He said, I said, he said, I said, he said, I said. And I would shake and be frightened. He said, it went on for days that way. So those of you who know something about the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder know that one of the things that's helpful is telling your story over and over again and sitting with the feeling of the story, which is what he essentially was doing. And he said, you know... The day before yesterday, I finally got to the place where I could sit and be peaceful. I could think the story. It could come up in my mind. He said, I said, he said, I said. And I'd be calm. And I felt much better. And he said, yesterday I was sitting again and doing my phrases and being with my breath and doing the phrases. And he said, suddenly the story came up in my mind again. And it occurred to me that That man had the life that he had, was doing what he was doing because of what had happened to him in his life before then. And I have the life that I have and I am the way that I am because of everything that happened to me and my whole story up to then. And then I realized if he had had my life, he would be like me and if I had had his life, I would be like him. And he said, when I realized that, I stopped being angry at him. And then I really felt better. So that's the end of that story. And it's a really very important story. I really felt better is really, for me, the important operative line. When we forgive people, it's on our own behalf as much as on their behalf. Everyone is doing what they're doing all the time because of every cause and condition. And what we do now is one of the causes and conditions. What I do right now, what you do right now, or don't do, is one of the causes and conditions of the whole future of ourselves and of everything. So today a friend of mine officiated at a funeral of um, a freshman at uh, the University of Santa Barbara whose home was in Marin County. And she was killed um, day before yesterday, I think, by um, 
another student who um, purposely drove his car in a fit of anger, apparently, and somewhat intoxicated into a group of students on the sidewalk, and four people were killed. I'm very sorry to tell you that story. I didn't want to not tell you that story, though, because it's true. Because I understood in a new way that teaching from Shantideva that I read to you the other day, good works gathered in a thousand ages, such as deeds of generosity or offerings to the blissful one, a single flash of anger shatters them. single flash of anger, in this case, has shattered so many lives, lives of four young people, their parents, the young man who did it, his parents. His parents, apparently, I didn't see this or hear it, but I heard about it, were uh, either on radio or TV talking to the parents of the people who were hurt, crying, both of them. What can you do other than cry? Can't imagine that anyone there can ever recuperate. Thought of the other line from Shanti Deva: "Those tormented by the pain of anger will never know tranquility of mind." It's always terribly sad when there's an accident and someone is killed, especially a young person. It's different though if the brakes fail than if it's a purposeful act of anger, began to think about really the imperative of practicing loving-kindness, the imperative of behaving as if we've already arrived at the place of naturally manifesting loving-kindness and compassion before we get there through insight. Let's do the sutta a little bit more. I used to tell this sutta. I learned it when I learned it by heart for the first time. I began it always from the middle of it. May all beings be happy or may all beings be at ease. I began to think that the lines before it are really what it makes it what makes it possible. I think they're the instructions for the capacity for wishing with a whole heart. May all beings be at ease. Don't think you can say ready, set, go, wish. However much we want to, there's preparation work that we need to do on the level of insight, on the level of training. So we can do it. I think the eight or nine lines before that are the prescription for what we need to do. And I think the four lines at the very end of the sutta are really the promise of liberation. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. But that those two lines go together, one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. I think we're meant to realize that goodness is the path to peace. They're not two separate things. 
I've been thinking a lot about how uh, among um, recognizable symbols in the world, the picture of the Dalai Lama has become one of those symbols that people recognize. People used to say, someone did a survey once and said the three most uh, universally recognized symbols were Mickey Mouse, the Coca-Cola inscription in that script that says drink iced co- drink Coca-Cola iced, it says it in all languages all over the world, and, the, and it will say drink iced, but the Coca-Cola says Coca-Cola, and it says it in that particular script, anywhere you go, Fiji, the most remotest places of the world, remote places in the world will say drink Coca-Cola, and, people, and it's written that way. Mickey Mouse, Coca-Cola, and Elvis Presley, it said, were the three most recognizable symbols. And now I think that uh, the Dalai Lama is probably getting to be one of them. And um, I, I thought, well, uh, maybe that would be, first of all, I think it would be wonderful. I think that people think about uh, the Dalai Lama with great interest, even though they might not be interested in becoming Buddhists or studying Buddhism or actually even being the Dalai Lama. I think what people are drawn to is what they sense as the possibility of a peaceful heart. And the possibility of a peaceful heart awake to the truth of the world that's, that's an activist for peace in the world and maintaining a peaceful heart the possibility of a peaceful heart and mind. I wondered if it would be appropriate to link the Dalai Lama in the same category with Elvis Presley, Coca-Cola, and Mickey Mouse. But I thought about uh, if you put in the children's books where it's a children's workbook and it'll give you four different pictures and it says circle the picture that doesn't belong. (laughs) And you could put those four, but I actually think that the Dalai Lama does belong if you make the category those things that make you feel good. The possibility of a peaceful heart makes you feel good. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. Kill's talk last night was such a lovely reminder about right action being um, a source of great happiness the liberating potential, really, of sila practice. The Buddha talked about the bliss of blamelessness, really knowing that you haven't done anything to cause more pain in this already overburdened-by-pain world. Gentle, straightforward in speech, Lovely to think about imagining that we could say everything in a gentle way. We've been wonderful together in a silent way. Sometimes I think it's easier to live together happily in a silent community. We don't say anything to each other that might possibly offend. But once we begin to talk, suppose we said everything in a way that was gentle so it didn't startle people. Humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. 
I think a lot about the not conceited. And uh, I'm really about seeing what's true, knowing deeply what's true about the non-ownership of skill. That's what non-conceited is. Knowing that whatever skill you have, you don't own it. If I teach well, when I teach well, it's really the fact that the merit of all of my teachers and, all, and my parents and my family and my friends and my health and maybe even the phase of the moon. I don't know. But they come together well. It's not my merit. It's the merit of everything. They come together not so well sometimes. It's not anybody's fault either. It's just how they came together at that time. There's a Taoist expression, the person of Tao is not affected by praise and blame. And I used to think, whoa, I'd love that to be true. It's truer now than it used to be. If I know I don't own it, then it's just what it is. I loved Gil's answer to somebody's question this morning. I said, that's the best I can do. It always is the best we can do. Nobody purposely does less than the best they can do, ever. Even when we do something really grievous, it's the best we can do. We wouldn't do it otherwise. Nobody purposely wants to suffer. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Unburdened by duties. I, I, I really have thought about this a lot. I don't think it means not having anything to do. Perhaps I've made this up, but I, I do a lot of things. I... Uh, uh, and I enjoy doing them. I, I, I get a great pleasure out of uh, being involved in a lot of projects. A friend of mine uh, became aware of the other day of a number of projects that I was involved in. And a friend of mine who's a colleague, and I, I thought they might say, wow, you know, I'm juggling so many things at one time. And they said instead, you're so good at multitasking. I felt so good about that. That was a whole other context, not, whoa, you've taken on all this stuff. You're so good at multitasking. Much better. I can remember my friend Alex Burson, uh, who uh, teaches mostly in Europe and Asia, uh, came to the United States a year or so ago and, and phoned some weeks in advance, and he said, I'm, uh, I'm going to be in San Francisco these three days. Can we meet to have... Uh, a lunch or a dinner or something. And I looked in my appointment book and it was so crowded. And I said, um, Alex, I'm about to uh, feel embarrassed, I have to tell you, uh, that uh, there hardly looks like a moment free on those three particular days. So I'm afraid I'm blowing my cover as a contemplative. And he said, uh, well, of course, he said, Sylvia, you keep in mind, I'm sure, that it's not the number of things in the mind that matters. It's the state of the mind around them. And so thank you very much, Alex. I, in that moment, had in fact forgotten, but it's a much nicer way to put that. It's not about having nothing to do. It's not about having a lot or a little to do. It's about having a mind that's contented and open and loving, not in contention with anything. And then we come to the line that uh, 
I really like a lot. Peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I love that line about not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I think that that really points to an awareness, an empathic awareness of how our actions will impinge on ourselves or on other people. I'll tell you the uh, a story I've had a lot of pleasure from telling these last several months um, because I think it's the way in which it's a story about seeing how empathy begins to develop in young children, sensing what will cause pain or discomfort to other people. Uh, my uh, uh, my grandson Harrison is uh, three years old, but younger than three, maybe more around two. Uh, I was having lunch with him at his house and his mother, three of us having lunch, and he had more or less finished eating the cookie that he was busy eating, but there was still half of it left. So he had about half of the cookie, but no more appetite. So he was clearly looking at what to do with this cookie now that he had half of it. And uh, we were watching him, he had it in his hand, and he put it out like this, over the floor, and he's looking at the cookie and looking down at the floor. And clearly, he's thinking about how interesting it might be to crush that cookie. And, and uh, his mother said to him in a really quiet voice, she said, Harrison, think about it. Is this, you think this is a good thing, good idea or a bad idea? <laughs> so, you know, thought about it, figured out it was a bad idea. And to him, it was an interesting idea, but <laughs> you get the sense this action would cause dismay to somebody else, and it would hurt me to cause dismay to somebody else. It's the beginning of empathy. Actions have consequences. Other people feel them. So I think about that particular cookie. Do you think this is a good idea or a bad idea? Because I think about having taken that on in the last year or so for myself uh, in the following form, because if I'm not empathic also, not only with other people, but with my own needs, I could make mistakes around that particular dimension of multitasking, which I am pretty good at, but not limitless at. And uh, one of the things that I've taken on as a practice is when anyone phones me and says, um, would you like to do this and this and this? And it's usually interesting. So teach something with interesting people in an interesting place or do something interesting. And they tell me all those things and I get excited about it because that's one of the things that I really like to do. And I listen and I say, what a good idea. And then they get a little excited, I think, because they think I'm going to do it, which I sometimes do. But I say after that, I, ha I can't say yes, though, because I have this new spiritual practice. I'll, I'll call you back in a few days, during which time I'll do my new spiritual practice. And they wait. I, I think they think I'm going to say I do this mantra or something or other, consult some divination, something. And I have this new spiritual practice called thinking it over. Uh, they think about it for a minute, and then they appreciate it, and they say, oh, what a good practice. But it's really the same thing, thinking it over. Would the wise later reprove? Would the wisest part of me, 
that knows what's good for me. Think this was a good choice or a bad choice. Thinking it over. You can see in all of this practice is the practice of waiting, restraint, and then wise decision. Wishing in gladness and in safety. Both of those words are wonderful. Wishing in gladness and in safety means that wishing well makes you happy. Wishing in gladness. It's a happy thing to wish people well. And in safety. Because it comes out of feeling safe. You don't wish people well naturally and free-flowing when you feel frightened, when you don't feel safe. When we don't feel safe, we forget about other people. Our whole attention gets caught up in our own self. We forget that there are any other people in the world. So the fact that we can wish well is a, a, a declaration of gladness and a declaration of feeling safe. Really, an open heart is fearless. Wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Then the next part of it really defines all the ways in which we might accidentally not be wishing well. Names them. Let no one deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let no one, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. It's wonderful. First do it, and then these are the ways that you might. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all beings. It's a little bit tricky to read that piece of the sutta now. In the context of uh, Indian culture 2,500 years ago, that apparently was a given, you could say. It was maybe, I'm sure that mothers were mothers then as they are now. But the cultural understanding was that a mother would give her life for her child. We say it differently now. Often I read it as just as a parent would do anything to support their child. We also have to be aware of the fact that in our culture and in our time, we're aware that some parents don't support their child. So I often say it as just as a parent might or could or would that a parent. I think it's in the genes, though, if we are not some way out of touch with ourselves. I think of it as being part of the DNA of of mammals. I'm uh, very taken with the image of, um, of course, all mammals take care of their young and know how to do that. But I'm taken with the image of whales that know which side the waves are coming from. So they swim on the side of their baby that the waves are to protect the child so that the baby whale can swim along with them and, uh, and be able to nurse and grow. And I think that that impulse is really in all of us to care for, the, for our own.
radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should restrain, retain, sustain this recollection. Free from anger and ill will. The question is, what if it's really real? Sometimes in the past I've, I've been a little bit, um, I've joked about it a little bit. Um, talked about, it's a bad joke though, talked about people coming and saying, you know, I, I, I don't have any trouble at all wishing well to all beings in the world on all realms. But to my sister who wronged me in this way, or to my brother-in-law who offended me, and I don't want to do that anymore. I think actually we're more sophisticated now. We all know that those kinds of grudges and vendettas cause pain. And we all really don't want to have them. And we all really, I think, intuit the possibility of healing from the kinds of offenses of she hurt my feelings or he hurt my feelings. But I've been thinking all day, and this is why I didn't want to tell it in a light way, what will these parents of these children who were killed by this driver, what will they do about forgiving? Not forgetting, what will they do about forgiving? There's an article in um, the latest journal of uh, spirituality and health. One evening in July 1998, Terry Carlson was walking home with her husband from the annual community festival in Byron, Minnesota, when a four-wheel drive pickup swerved into the gutter and slammed into them at 55 miles per hour. Terry was thrown 150 feet and survived. Her husband died instantly. Even four hours after the accident, the driver, Eric, a 25-year-old deputy county sheriff, had a blood alcohol content 50% over the minimum for drunk driving. Yet Terry later discovered she couldn't hate the driver. For one thing, she too had occasionally driven after drinking a little too much. He was only 25, she says, just a baby. He had lost everything he'd committed to in his profession. She requested that Eric receive 10 years probation and community outreach, but the county attorney refused and sentenced Eric to 44 months. Terry felt further violated. She was deeply troubled by the outcome of the trial, both for herself and for Eric. To start a new life, she packed up her three children and moved from Minnesota to Oregon, where she became the project director for Western Community Policing Center in Salem. She brought with her many unanswered questions and conflicted feelings. Then she heard about restorative justice, this program, and jumped at the chance to go through with the process. Both she and Eric began to meet separately with Mark Umbright, director of the Center for Restorative Justice and Peacemaking at the University of Minnesota. Their goal was to clear the path and deal with any obstacles that would block deep, compassionate listening. It took a year before Terry and Eric were ready to meet, but then, with Umbright as a mediator, they had a warm and honest talk, even laced with laughter, and reached an agreement. 
Eric's actions on that July night had ripped him from the fabric of the Byron community, which is his whole existence, says Terry. She promised to do whatever she could do to help integrate him back into the life of the small town. They also agreed to speak jointly to school and community groups in the area, as well as to the city council, to ask them to build a sidewalk on the frontage road where the incident had happened. In addition, they both believed Eric should talk to the three Carlson children about the death of their father. Terry is happy and grateful that she went through it. I can't express how much the restorative justice process has healed me, she explained. I can't heal my family if I can't heal myself. That's, I think, the important line. I can't heal my family if I can't heal myself. Life would have been very much more difficult if I hadn't pursued this. I think that forgiveness is really about healing ourselves, restoring our capacity for loving. It's really what keeps us alive. I've been reading a book called um, Searching for Your Soul, just bits of spiritual autobiographies. read a very touching story about a woman whose husband is a long-time husband, is diagnosed with a malignant melanoma and tells her at the same time of his diagnosis about his years of infidelity and um, the crisis that they both go through, her own past also, complex with infidelities. But here the piece begins with him staying, saying, Will you still love me? And then telling her the story. And the whole piece, which is agonizing to read, really, the amount of candor and the amount of self-disclosure, the amount of work these people are doing, it ends with her saying, I have to still love him, all of him, the whole of him, because that's not the whole of him. It's just part of him. It's not the whole of him. I can't love part of him if I don't love all of him. And I have to be able to love. Instead of, I can't put it out of my mind. To not think about it, not work on it, to not actively involve myself in coming to terms with it would mean lethargy, she said. And that's the death of love. So it's very hard work to really stay awake in a troublesome world, to be a person in it, to have to look at our own truths. But when we can really look without hiding, when the mind really can open to everything, tell the truth about it, by not holding to fixed views, a pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I think when we begin to really look at everything and see with the biggest vision that we can, we really know that everybody is doing the best that they can. Nobody wants to suffer. We all of us behave awkwardly, out of ignorance. 
The very best we can do is help each other out. Being freed from sense desires. I like that to read that more as being freed from compulsions. I thought that was such a good word to use for tanha, compulsions. Being freed from compulsions. Kind of personal drivenness makes us in contention with our experience. Needy. Separate. We are not reborn into suffering. The moment-to-moment suffering of the sense of a separate self. The separate self dissolves what manifests out of the intention born of insight. Out of the intention that supports the insight is really spontaneous wishes for well-being on behalf of all beings. Tomorrow, when we end, we'll do a dedication of merit. And we'll say, I'll say something like, um, may the practice and uh, study and uh, intention that we all have brought together here for these many weeks Whatever merit that we accumulated from this practice and study, intention, the way that we lived with each other, may whatever merit we accrued be offered freely as a gift on behalf of the well-being of all beings. May all beings be peaceful and happy and free of suffering. But in fact, it's really, I think, the formal closing of a retreat period for those people for whom tomorrow will be the end of this retreat. I think that every moment that we practice is already on behalf of all beings. We have given it away. There isn't anything that you can do for yourself because there isn't any self that's separate. In any moment that we do not contribute to the whole fabric of the world, any greed or any hatred, any delusion, We have made a moment. We've given a gift for the well-being of all beings everywhere. I think about it. Didn't used to get that understanding about dedicating oneself to all beings and their liberation. I I used to think there's six billion human beings, who knows how many other beings, can't run around and personally wish them all well. But we actually can pay attention to our own hearts. Not add one more drop of greed or hatred or delusion. Through the practice of well-wishing, the intention to sustain that practice with the insight, that doing that is on behalf of ourselves as it is on behalf of all beings. So let's sit for a minute.
May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 1, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.